0: You're listening to episode 157 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Reverend Compton and Dr. Alan Strange look into what the ancient Near East, particularly ancient Israel, thought about abortion and infanticide in general, and what legislation was in place to protect the lives of the unborn. They're continuing their series on the gospel for a post row society. Take a listen.
1: Well, welcome back to Roundtable. I'm Andrew Compton, and with me is my esteemed colleague, Alan Strange, professor of church history, apologetics, and opera here at Mid-America <laughs> Reform Seminary. Anyway, we have been discussing... Uh, well, we've been discussing life in this post-Roe situation. Last time we talked about the scriptural witness to the uh, pro-life conviction, mostly in terms of of the the theological underpinnings for our belief that a child in utero is indeed a child, a human being in utero, deserving of protection against murder. What's Worth doing—it's related as a scriptural uh, some scriptural data points—is to actually turn to the question of legislation in ancient Israel in particular. Uh, what were there laws that relate to the protection uh, of of children in utero? Now, before we do that, I mean, it's it's worth noting there was a variety of ways in which uh, laws were passed in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, even. You can, uh, you can look at some of the Middle Assyrian laws and see that even though the Assyrians were not known for their hospitality, uh, nonetheless, there were Middle Assyrian laws calling for capital punishment against women who tried to abort their children. Now, what's uh, interesting is uh, they would actually even uh, specify that uh, the woman who tried to do this, her corpse would be sort of exposed uh, in shame. You know, just part of it was this this humiliating uh, kind of um, punishment. Although, uh, admittedly, these same laws did permit a man to kill an unwanted newborn, and so you don't want to overstate uh, the idea of of what the um, Assyrian laws were, were promoting. But it seems like the, the prohibition of a woman aborting her baby had more to do with uh, the rights of a man to have uh, that woman bear his child. Right. So, you know, again, there, it's not exactly an apples-to-apples apples kind of comparison. Although, go to Persia, and it does seem that more of the Persian laws uh, condemned uh, abortion. And there was all kinds of herbs and things known to um, to cause abortions, uh, and yet the Persian laws, insofar as we have access to them, much, a lot of it comes from later, uh, later texts, but it is um, thought that many of these uh, laws do, in fact, date back to the Achaemenid period, which would be more in um, a more contemporary period with later Old Testament history, um, period of the exile and restoration and such. The ancient world, though, had a variety of ways they approached this. Gre- Greco-Roman laws, by contrast, uh, seemed to be much more um, affirming, you know, permitting abortion to take place whenever it was convenient. And as we were kind of discussing, even off off record, that's part of why the Christian witness was so compelling. Right here, here were uh, Christians who refused to expose infants who were unwanted, but in fact took those unwanted infants and made them their own, and raised them to know the love of Christ, and raised them as believers. And that uh, that became. Um, it seems like there's almost recognized. a parallel.
2: You know, we talk about uh, we're familiar in redemptive history. With the Canaanites filling up the measure of their sin, God brings His people in His judgment. It seems also there were certain practices in the Greco-Roman world we, we can we could talk about their sexual practices, which I think are associated their their uh, perverse sexual practices that are associated also with abortion and a, a cheap view of life, and that you could you could think of it this way: Christianity then becomes the sparkling diamond of God's grace that shines so brightly against the dark felt background Hmm. of sin that the greco roman world presents. And and here's the Christian faith as the answer to what the world uh, does not have or does not know. Taking God's good gifts. They took God's good gifts and badly misused them. And now uh, here comes the Christian faith. Although sometimes, as we know... Even in its sexual ethic, they sometimes overshot the mark and didn't properly appreciate uh, marriage and family. Some of which is not recovered till the Reformation. Uh, but we don't we don't get it all right at once. Uh, but we're we're really grateful that if you look at it and really understand uh, what was going on with the Christian faith over against the world of its day, Christianity today is often portrayed by radicals. Uh, as an oppressive uh an oppressive instrument in history and it's been the chief uh spoiler of all fun when in fact if you trace it out and understand it i think with some wisdom you can see that christianity is really the great liberator hmm. the great blesser uh you know giving an understanding of personhood giving an understanding of of the value of Unborn life and just born life. Yeah, you know it's
1: it's uh, it's interesting to consider the objection of some who say, "Well, if if the Bible is so consistently against abortion, why are there no laws? Right? Why are there no Israelite laws uh, indicating as such?" I mean, there are uh, explicit laws in other civilizations. Why not in Israel? And, and there's been a number of ways to, to deal with that seeming silence. I think Meredith Klein is probably on the right track to just say, abortion was so abhorrent to the Israelite mind that it wasn't necessary to have a, sp- a specific prohibition in the Mosaic law. I, I think Roy Gain even points out um, in, in his work on, on Old Testament law, because children were considered such a blessing— it would just be absurd to to think about that there would be people uh, who would be wanting to get rid of their children and uh, and needing to have a law to uh, to keep them from doing so. I mean, that would be maybe analogous to saying, uh, "Why isn't there a law in America uh, saying that you'll, um, you know, you'll uh, you'll get in big trouble if you um, if you bear, you know throw your money in Lake Michigan?" Or something. Well, because most people don't throw their money in Lake Michigan; they keep their money because money's something they really value. You know, something something analogous there.
2: Now, Maybe in the casinos they do. that. Well,
1: yes. There's, <laughs> touche. <laughs> well, but the question is raised about Exodus twenty-one. In fact, in the uh, the OPC's study uh, committee, this was one of the passages they uh, they dealt with at length because Exodus twenty-one. Verses 22 to 25 has been used, or maybe I should say uh, some have suggested that this is evidence that Israel Israel's laws did not view the unborn child as a person who is protected by the, uh, the Sixth Commandment. Listen to what it says, verse 22 of Exodus 21. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise here's the famous uh, lex talionis here right the law of, of retribution that that is now invoked and the 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 argument goes like this here are two scenarios one you have these men who are having themselves a little you know brouhaha. and in their fight they 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 seemingly accidentally hit this woman with child and she gives birth and then it says yet there is no injury the argument is made, well, that injury is to the mother. The presumption is that the, ba- the baby was born prematurely and died, and the injury was to the mother, and therefore all that is levied is a fine. Um, there's no injury to the mother, so only a fine uh, will, will be levied. But if the woman is injured, well, then, or if she's killed then there will be the lex talionis kicking in. And the idea is that, well, see, what matters is the woman's life, the woman's well-being, not that of the child. So this is kind of the, um, this is the passage that's invoked as potentially then, or I should say that interpretation of it, as potentially suggesting that Israel may not have viewed the unborn as a human who is protected by a prohibition against murder right? The, the idea is that the dead child is not considered murder. It's only in the second case where the woman is injured that that capital punishment might kick in. Now, how do we respond to that? On the one hand, it's not easy to relegate the harm uh, as being to the woman only, right? The injury as it is, this uh, this asone in Hebrew, right? The syntax is, is actually ambiguous. Well, you could even argue that it's speaking, it's, it's most directly related to the child, but I don't think it's limited to the child. Uh, it, it, it can make harm refer to either the woman or the child. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, if it is intended, if it was intended as an exclusive referent to one person or the other, the law could have done that, right? It, it could have specified if there was injury to the woman, or if there was injury to the child, they could have made that very clear. I mean, the syntax of of that's not that that difficult to do. Instead, it seems to be written in such a way that both the woman and the child are in view. Mm-hmm. So the injury being depicted here could be to one or the other. And, and there's and, and this needs to... Um,
2: in, in, any injury. It's mm-hmm. written in
1: a way that it could mean injury to either party. It's very broad. It's very broad. I think even if, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, right, even if it referred only to the mother, um, we need to remember that the, these laws don't allow us to simply reason from penalty to personhood. Because, look, only a few verses later, you have, um, you know, you, you have uh, this example, verse 32, if the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned okay, wait a minute just a just a fee you know that the owner of the ox is not is not uh, is not uh, held responsible for this for the life of the slave Does that mean that slaves were not considered persons? Well that's that's not uh, what what the Bible is getting at. Um, we wouldn't infer that the Bible says slaves are not persons or that they don't have a right to life. So we need to just remember that even if, Uh, it were the case that the the injury was only a reference to the mother. That still can't ground the claim that this is thereby showing us that we have a non-person here.
0: Next time Reverend Compton and Dr. Strange respond to the world's reaction to the repeal of Roe, and how the church can continue to be a bastion for life. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.